Good day, good folks. You are listening to talk that keeps you woke. And with your awakening, we hope that you will take in the information and knowledge we provide. So make sure you like and subscribe while you hop on this ride as we inform, persuade, entertain, and engage in discussion. Welcome to Potlicker Podcast, which is knowledge to feed your soul. I may go one half of Potlicker. I go by Dr. A, the inquisitive one. A great debater, Mr. Slow Talker, a rhetorician, and an all-around nice guy, and a member of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. The other half of Potlicker is my homie, my dear friend for more than 30 years, Kim Parker Jackson Esquire, the legal one, Mrs. Creativity, never obnoxious, the gifted one, a terrific lady, and a member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. Okay, we are back better than ever this glorious Sunday. Weather is nice. Welcome back, partner. How are you doing today? Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to everyone. I am well. My week was good. And how about yours, Dr. A? How are you? I just I just feel happy today. Uh went to two church services. Um, and saw my grateful lady sing and lead songs today in front of a mass uh, audience. And, you know, I'm feeling kind of good today. And welcome to everybody that is a loyal listener to Pot Liquor Podcast. And if you are a loyal listener, you know we start our show, our podcast off with the wow of the week. This one comes from a familiar person, maybe not familiar to most, but familiar to us, uh, Stephen Biko. And he states the oppressor, the oppressor's most potent weapon is the mind of the oppressed. He is simply telling us that the folks that are captivated in systemic racism and and white supremacy and follow along with that that is our mind and the oppressors count on that behavior and that mindset so they don't have to use much force what say you partner i agree wholeheartedly and that's why we have to stay woke as they say and i I believe if you can convince oppressed people that they are inferior you can continue to exert power, influence, and control over them. And that's the way it works in America because Black people in America are programmed to believe that we are inferior and that we are not equipped to be leaders and we are where we are in our society because we're not smart enough, we don't work hard enough, and we know that those are all lies. But people like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis think that if they repeat a lie enough times that we will eventually believe that it is the truth. But I say your mouth ain't no prayer book. And just because people in high places say things does not mean that they are true. And that is why we have to remain woke. I couldn't have said it better. I totally agree with you. And that is our words of wisdom. Our wow for the week from Brother Stephen Biko out of South Africa. The oppressor's most potent weapon is the mind of the oppressed. 
All right, before we get into what's going on, we will start with our first plug of the week. And that is Vaseline Intensive Care. For our ashy brothers and sisters, this is a great product that I use on a regular basis. It is, it hydrates the skin, is very soothing, and there's a lot of ingredients inside of this lotion that is very beneficial to the skin. So Vaseline Intensive Care Cocoa Radiant Lotion. And let us move on. So, what is going on this week? So, a big question after the affirmative action ruling by the Supreme Court, how colleges are going to factor race in without asking about race? So, we know that um, the Supreme Court um, has done away with uh, affirmative action or selecting someone based on race. Um, institutions uh, and colleges. This was, was it, it was Harvard and University of North Carolina, I believe, mm-hmm. um, that they can no longer use race as a factor. But in articles all this week, they were saying, well, there are different ways that we could use race um, to help benefit uh, minority folks um, to get into uh, PWIs, which are predominantly white institutions. Um, so what is your thought process on this part? Well, I think that although the Supreme Court basically overturned affirmative action, uh, they did sort of leave a blueprint for how you could factor race into um, the admissions process without making it a factor in the admissions decision. And that sounds kind of like semantics, um, but Chief Justice John Roberts said in the majority opinion that colleges can still consider applicants' discussions of how race affected their lives so long as that discussion is concretely tied to a quality of character or a unique ability that the particular applicant can contribute to the university. So I think the good news is that colleges are trying to find a workaround and trying to figure out how they can still diversify their classes without totally relying, directly relying on race as a factor. So, you know, there's different ways to do it. And I think, for example, schools are, you know, although they're being advised not to publicly state what they plan to do because they want to protect themselves from liability. I mean, people, this is all new and people are still trying to figure it out. So I think schools have been advised not to speak publicly about what exactly their plans are. But one school in particular, Sarah Lawrence College in Bronxville, New York, they're going to just basically mirror the words that Chief Justice 
Roberts used in his um, in, in, in the majority opinion, they're going to use that to sort of tailor their um, essay questions that they have on their college applications. They're going to tailor it to mirror the language that he used. And to me, that's probably the safest way um, to do it, because then, you know, you're complying with the law. For example, one of their questions is going to be drawing upon examples from your life, a quality of your character and or a unique ability you possess. Describe how you believe your goals for a college education might be impacted, influenced or affected by the court's decision. So that that question on their application comes directly from the majority opinion. So, you know, that's an easy way to sort of stay within the bounds of the law and still try to once you get, for example, a student um, to speak about their experience being a particular race, that is going to sort of give you um, a window into the character of that person, what they, the obstacles that they may have overcome in their life. And they could use that as, you know, a, a, a determining factor on whether or not they want this person to be a part of their school community. I think that's great. For example, if they've overcome, you know, racism, you know, a racist event in their life, um, that's a person who is going to, you know, have a, a person of high moral character, if you if if you will. So that is someone that you would want to have as part of your um, campus. And then you would have, you know, a diverse applicant. So and then they're also making changes in the way they recruit diverse applicants. For example, they're going to try to attract more applicants by, you know, maybe having uh, arranging campus visits or reaching out and telling people about scholarship opportunities, which is also going to, you know, attract a diverse uh, group of applicants, even if it's diversity and socioeconomic status. So the bottom line for me is I think that this is good news because it, it shows that schools are really putting um, a lot of thought and effort into how they can still, um, uh, still, uh, create a diverse uh, class and without, without, you know, without violating the law. So what do you think? I teach at separate institutions. I teach at an HBCU and I teach at a PWI. And I feel like, let's just talk about the PWI. I teach at Texas A&M University. And mm -hmm. I will say that most students don't concern themselves with this. If you force them into a conversation, they will say, yeah, everybody should be treated fairly. But as long as they get into the institution, that's all that matters to them. Most of them are not jumping up saying, hey, we need more African-Americans, more Hispanics, more Asians at this particular institution. And it doesn't mean that they don't want more there. It's just that that is not their first concern. I also believe it is hard, and we'll, we'll talk to our guests today about this. It is hard for some of these gifted students to come to an institution 
a PWI and, you know, visitation and recruitment and having them come to the campus is not always a glorious thing. Because if I'm an African-American, which I am, and I come to a PWI, I'm saying, where's the blackness on campus? What area of the campus am I going to feel comfortable? Why am I happy to be here? These are supposed to be four years of my, uh, four years of my, four of the greatest years of my life. Mm -hmm. And I'm not seeing it at this institution. There's no black culture going on here. So why would I want to be here? Mm -hmm. As a faculty member, it's different. My school days are over. I'm working. So if it's an all-white school, all-black school, doesn't matter as much to me as far as, well, I'm not going to teach here because there are not enough black students or I'm not going to teach here because there's enough, not enough white students. I go in to do a job. I love teaching human beings, period. So the faculty is different. What would stop me from teaching at a school at Texas A&M or moving up to a place like College Station is just the place itself. Would I want to raise kids there? So on and so forth. So there are a lot of things that go into um, wanting to teach or wanting to attend these universities. I just didn't understand why our institution, which is Texas A&M University, had to follow along the lines of eliminating DEI. I know the state said it and uh, affirmative action. It just doesn't make sense to me because you hardly have any African-American students there. But don't you think that you, you mentioned as a teacher, you don't spend a lot of time thinking about the makeup of the student body because you're focused on doing what you what your job is and that is to teach don't you think that there are some students who have a similar mindset there may be some uh african-american students or other students of color who may think okay i am here to get an education i have a social group maybe outside of this school, or I can find my own, you know, uh, cultural uh, experience or, or cultural affinity, you know, within the campus on my own. Like, I don't need that in the I, university I overall. So, I feel if you choose you know to go, I mean? if you go to, if I feel as a Black student, or a minority student, if you choose to go to a PWI, you need to ingratiate yourself with the dominant culture at that institution. So I often ask, why? hold on, let me finish. I often ask African-American students, why did you choose Texas A&M? And they quickly say, oh, that network, that network is powerful. My reply to my black students is, you know that network is white, right? That's a white network. So while you're here, make yourself known on the campus. Talk to and, and uh, socialize with these white folks. A lot of the white students are scared of the black students. I've heard this in class. I don't know how to approach them. I don't know what to say to them. 
They're just going to be angry at us. <laughs> um, you can't win. So they have all these preconceived notions about black bodies at the institutions because they're not getting to know African-American students or Hispanic students. I had one student tell, tell the crowd in the classroom, like she started crying in my classroom because she didn't know to come in and sit next to a black at, at a forum to sit next to a black student or walk away. She thought if she sat next to him, there's a possible danger. If she walks away from that seat, then she's treating him like he is a threat and a violent person. So she was stuck. So I would say, just sit down and introduce yourself and say, hello. They're human, just like you are human. But if you have little interactions with African-Americans or other underrepresented minorities, you may think this way. You may develop this phobia or this stigma or this stereotype about black bodies and treat folks as such. I think I just disagree with your um, your position that if a black person chooses to go to a PWI, they have to ingratiate themselves to white people. Like I don't, I just disagree with that because first of all, and you ask why would a black person want to go to a PWI? A lot of times a black person will choose to go to a PWI because they want that, especially with the Supreme Court decision, they want the prestige of a Harvard University on their resume. They want the prestige of that degree from that Ivy League institution or that highly selective institution, if you will. And that's why they go. And it's a white prestige. There is a, what was that? It's a white prestige. I know, but the point is, is that that's why a black person would want to go to such a school. And then the network is not only, there. there's, uh, there's also a black network there because you will find that at PWIs, black people will you will find a black community there that will sit together. That's the whole the that's whole Harvard. phenomenon. That's the whole phenomenon with the cafeteria situation where that's, you'll go to the cafeteria and right. there's the black table with all right. the black students. Right. So that is a that is a community within a community, and you will also have that as your network. So. But I mean, you're still dependent. You still if you if you go, if you go to Harvard, you're still depending on a white corporate structure to hire you because you went. You're like you're telling that white corporate structure, "Oh, look at me! I went to your institution and I excelled, so I'm a different black." That's what you're basically trying to say, you know? Because when 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 because you're you're looking for that prestige, that white prestige, that white supremacy to get you into these corporations. Well, the fact of the matter is that they do get people into those corporations. It works. But that's the, but 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 that's not the only way. Do you see what I'm saying? You know, you can you can to me the student makes the difference. So if you are a fabulous person that is going to do amazing things in your life, you're going to do those things whether you go to an HBCU or whether you go to a PWI. You're going because you have to have more than just 
a prestigious degree. I mean, everybody knows somebody with a prestigious degree that is has a mediocre career. You know what I mean? I say you know, if you're going to go to the determination, if, that person, you know what I mean? If Great. you go to those oh. institutions, take a take advantage of the advantages. I mean, right. I'm not so mad at it. I don't at understand it. why students at Texas A&M, they come to Texas A&M and then they don't want to take part of um, any of the extracurricular activities um, that are not all black organizations. And then you're saying, well, I'm coming there for the, the, uh, the network. Like when I walk out, they'll see like, oh, he attended Texas A&M University. Right. And, you know, I'm down here in Texas. So the kids in Texas feel like Texas A&M rings across the country. And I always tell them it's regional. You know, you, you, you go to New York and Maryland, Texas A&M is not going to ring louder than the University of Maryland. It's just not, mm-hmm. you know, because um, most of the folks <laughs> in the state of Maryland probably went to the University of Maryland. Um, so. Don't get me wrong. I went to the school. I got a fine education. Um, and I'm I'm happy that I did get the education. But as far as like the recruitment and everything um, at Texas A&M, I don't look at it like, oh, I went to Texas A&M University. I just look at it like I achieved a PhD. Harvard, the Ivy Leagues, I get you. That's a different institution. That's a different stigma. If you go to the Ivy Leagues, yeah, that's a positive stigma. Like he went to an Ivy League. She went to a graduated from an Ivy League or Rice or Stanford or UVA. Any of those institutions is just like. Wow, those are that's prestigious schools, right? Those are and prestigious it's impressive. It's impressive, yeah. And yeah. if you are trying to get into the C-suite of a major corporation in America and the person doing the hiring may have gone to that particular school, you are going to get looked at because of the name on your on your resume, right? The, the name of the school that you went to. People, you know, just equate it with prestige and... Um, so what are, what are the schools going to do to bring in these black students? How do you, there's no more affirmative action. How do you bring in these black students? So let's just, let's save that for our guest. I think she may have um, some words to say about that. Let us move on. Oh, I thought you were bringing in the guest. All right, next up is a horrific story. Yeah, Northwestern football, excuse me, Northwestern should be together, not separate. But the hazing that went on at this institution is horrific. So let's talk about that. What was going on? There were, when you go to colleges, you join fraternities and sororities, and sometimes they're, they, well, they, I know for the Divine Nine, which is the Black, uh, what is it, Hellenic Council? Pan-Hellenic. Pan-Hellenic Council, sorry. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, It's not called pledging anymore. It's going through the process. The intake process. Right, the intake process. There's no when 
Kim and I were in uh, undergrad, there was a, what they call above ground pledging, mm-hmm. where you saw everybody in the trench coats, in the cheap stockings, marching in the across hats. campus, right? Marching <laughs> across line. campus. The 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 brothers all had shaven heads, and every hair was shaved off their faces with their trench coats and slacks khaki or what have you in shoes walking in the line matching outfits right right they done a they did away with that while i was in school i think kim's undergrad um she saw it all the way through i think they got rid of it after 89 they got rid of it after 89 89 was the last year they marched up on ground on where at morgan state yeah across the country okay Oh, oh okay yeah. I, so, and there were, I, I'm just, we're going to get to the football, but there was hazing, <laughs> hazing going on. Right. And so right. the band at the different institutions, there's hazing going on with the new, new folks that come in and just like sports team, there are hazing going on. So this story is about the hazing that took place at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, which is right outside of Chicago, which is a prestigious institution. Um, And it was embarrassing. They fired a coach that was there 15 to 17 years. He claimed to know, like, I didn't know this stuff was going on. I still would fire you because if you don't know this this is going on at your institution, you don't need to be at the institution. So there were reports of nudity, hazing, dry humping, and things of that nature. A lot of, um, I guess, like, I, I'm not stepping out of bounds when I would say this, homosexual uh, hazing activities, mm-hmm. uh, even to those who are heterosexual, racial uh activities that were going on at this institution uh with the football and then it spilled over to the baseball just to h- horrific like i don't understand i guess you're under that much pressure like if you don't let us dry hump you you're going to lose your scholarship well i, I the- guess i would have lost my scholarship <laughs> Well, it was part of the culture, it seems like. And one of the players stepped up, Lloyd Yates. Yates, yes. And he was the one. who African-American male. Right. And he sued the university. And he had the, well, he came forward and basically said that sexual abuse was directed at male players because of their sex in an effort to, quote, unquote, quote, break them, punish them, control them, or get them in line in violation of the Illinois gender, in in violation of the Illinois Gender Violence Act. And Yates said the program was centered around a culture of sexual violence. And Mm -hmm. he said that players, as you said, were forced to do acts in the nude and as punishment and initiation rituals, they were physically dry humped while and he said this this occurred while they were like 17 and 18 years old and like you said they were just trying to from his perspective 
as one of the as the quarterback on the football team at the time. They were just trying to fit in and make their mark in college sports. And he said, this is how you become accepted and earn respect from your teammates. You know what I mean? So that's why they sort of participated or felt the pressure to participate in these hazing activities. You know, and I mean, to me, I just, first of all, kudos to him for, you know, having the courage to speak up about what happened to him, you know, because his description of what happened to him is humiliating, like he was humiliated. And for him to have enough courage to come forward and say, this is what happened to him. He deserves, you know, respect and, and, and praise for that, I think. I'm glad this was uncovered too, you know, so that they my, could my big question is where is this coming from? This hazing? I can see the hazing. I can see hazing going on and you punishing so-called freshmen that are coming on, but the type of activity they use the haze was difficult. I, to me, I guess more scout, uh, what is it called? Scout. I'm, 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 losing, I'm losing the word. More exercises, mean? more training and things of that nature. I can see that as hazing, which is not good, but, you know, people will look at that and say, okay, they got them to do more. Um, do more suicides or something. <laughs> yeah, what is it called? Scalisthenics? Uh, um, oh, calisthenics? Calisthenics, yeah. Okay. Uh, that's an old gym word. Um, but this other stuff, I'm like, why are you doing something that folks, you know, they they don't want to do or partake in that? It's just striking to me. Well, you know, um, I, I talked to my husband about this because, you know, Ryan went to, he played football at UVA. And I asked him, like, do you know of any of this type of stuff that happened when you were playing? And he said nothing like that ever happened. The only thing he heard of was like... Um, taping people to go posts and stuff like, yeah, like funny lockers, stuff. Yeah, yeah. and making people go get your favorite drink and stuff like that. Yeah. He said they didn't even have to do that. He heard of things like that happening, but for him, the only thing he can recall is like having to sing a fight song, like all the carry, carry somebody else's bags or something like that. Like yeah. nothing sexual. I don't right. think, first of all, he would have been like, mm, no, no, right. Exactly. I'm not doing that. Exactly. But you know what it reminds me of? This whole thing reminds me of this a scene in one of my favorite movies, A Few Good Men. Remember that movie? Yeah. When Tom Cruise's character gets Jack Nich Nicholson's character, you know, yeah, to finally to admit, admit what was really got... going on. He was like, who ordered the cold red? Yeah. And he finally said, I ordered the cold red. And it showed that like. You're damn right. I ordered the cold right. red. Right. And I do it again because that's part of the culture. And, and that's the same thing here. Like the coaches cannot pretend like they didn't know what was going on. You knew what was going on. And you so you condone the behavior yeah, by allowing it. it to. Yeah. By Amen. allowing it to continue. Yes. So, yeah, it's part of the culture. And so, you know, that's why I'm glad he got fired. The, the head coach got fired. And, his, and then the baseball coach got fired. Right. Nobody yeah. believes you didn't know what was going on. Right. Like, seriously. Right. Stop it. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Kudos to the young. But, you know, the other thing I thought about, how is Ben Crump in it? Like, 
he is everywhere. He is everywhere. Well, Ben Crump is a civil rights leader. So. I know, but is there any other no, civil, civil rights attorneys rights. in America? Well, you, is you he get, the only one? You get the person that's going to draw the most cameras to them. So oh. he's going to spread it. He's the most prominent right now. Like, let, let's not hate on the brother, though. I'm not yeah. hating on the brother, but <laughs> can somebody else get some work? Let's celebrate them, though. That's what we do to black folks around. sometimes. Let's spread the love around. Spread the love around. Come on, Ben Crump. Hey. Ben Crump ain't <laughs> telling y'all not to look at others. You know, he's just saying they chose me. You know how the game goes. Okay. That's yeah. all that is. Let us move on. <laughs> all right. From one college situation to another one. This is Olivia. I want to say Dunn. It could be Dune, but it seems like Dunn, who yeah. is a gymnast at LSU. She is very popular in social media. She has 11.9 million viewers. Wow. She, her NIL, which is name, image, and likeness, she uh, makes... 3.4, which I believe is the highest of all college athletes per That's year. $3.4 million. It's gotten so bad that she cannot take face-to-face -face classes anymore. She has to um, be escorted across be, campus. Well, she has to take online Not classes. Be, she oh. has to have two security guards with, with her because she's getting approached by a lot of people. And Yes, it's a lot to do with the uh, dominant uh, standards of beauty in this country. She's a white girl with light eyes and blonde hair. And, you know, but I think most people are coming after her because if you take a picture of her, like if you and I took a picture of her with pot liquor on the back, you know, the views <laughs> that we would get would be astronomical. Okay, well, then let's be, do it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know the young lady. You said if you ran into her, you might you might get a selfie, right? Yeah, now. you know, if, if I was going down to LSU trying to search out some young white girl, they'd lock me up. Okay. Yeah. No, so, but that's what that's what had been happening though when they when they were going to their their gymnastics uh, meet. meets. Yeah. People would show up like 200 guys would show up and and be demanding to see Olivia Dunn, because they were just like, you know, fanatics. Like, you know what I mean? And yeah, so, yeah. I, I think it's more very was, distracting. Yeah, it was, but, you know, it all comes with the territory. But you know what? I think it's interesting that you don't hear a lot of, like, I haven't heard a lot about her, her athleticism or her success as a gymnast. And yet her valuation, as you said, is literally two million dollars more than the next highest which is angel reese and of course we know about angel reese because she she got a natty as your as your daughter would say she got a a natty you know <laughs> that national championship so we know that she's a superior uh, uh amazing athlete but yet her NIL valuation is $2 million lower. Yeah, than Angel, I mean, I'm not saying she's not a good, I'm not saying Olivia Dunn's not a good gymnast or anything. And yes, she is cute. 
she, you know, she's physically fit. She's cute and all that. She's a, a, a sports she's a white, illustrator. She's a white woman. Yeah, I, I'll she's say it straight out. See, I didn't, I wasn't going to go there. I'll I was go straight not gonna there. Go there. And she knows it too. She's a white woman. No, white, but then, white folks are the st standard of beauty in the United States. They just are. Okay. Angel Reese is not African-American women or other women are not. The standard, yeah, but beauty. I think they're fly, they're cute, they're you know, yeah. They're, Angel they're Reese is six foot three, also, too. But so. let me tell you another thing because I went and checked out her social media, Olivia Dunn. I looked at her um Instagram, and honestly, like I'm not hating on her and everything, but it was like a thirst trap, like lots of you know, provocative pictures. And like I said, she's cute, she's physically fit. And all of that, but it's not. Yeah. I'm telling you, it's not a thirst trap. It's folks that's managers saying, telling her to take these type of photos, and it's going to draw this type of attention. Huh? Cause sex sells. Yeah, of course it does. Okay, but here's where I'm going. Okay, because they say in order to maximize your nil opportunities, you have to first of all be a winner. So you have to be an amazing athlete and you have to win because that's going to attract. That's not the, true though, because well, what, what was the, what was the young, you to, hold on. Was, what was the young lady that played tennis? Shara Rapova? She won two championships, I believe. And Serena Williams at the time had won like 16 and Serena Williams was winning. Shara Rapova, what okay. I don't even think she had won one. Right, it wasn't Sarah, it was the it, other other lady. No, you're right. I, I, I can't argue with that. I can't argue with that. Um, she was like a Wall Street darling. Yeah, she just fit the mold. Yeah. And but you also have to be a social media influencer as well. You have to have you a fit lot the mold. I'm never gonna fit the mold, you know. I'm short, short, dark, and handsome. That's me. I'm old, I'm never gonna fit the mold. Right? They looking for something else. If you fit that standard, which Olivia Dunn does. She, their companies are like, okay, we want to put our brand with her face and throw it out there because she has close to 12 million followers and viewers. And that's what I'm saying. You also have to have the followers and viewers too. But, but so what do you think about a Shador Sanders or a Bronnie James? You don't think they could get the same, the same following and the same? Nothing, sells, nothing sells like a white woman. Sad to say, y'all heard it. Y'all yeah, heard it here. Sounds like a white Dr. woman, and, it, and it's United States. And I, I, you know, I love my black woman definitely all day. You know, I was raised by one, grandmothers, everything. Love black woman, but I'm just saying, in this country, the standard of beauty is white skin, light eyes, blonde hair, thin body, pale skin. But from where I'm from, that's not what people like, but okay. I'm, I'm from the same place you from. <laughs> you know, as Jamie Foxx so eloquently put it one day, black men like they women with a little bit more girth. Oh, yeah. They want to they thicker than but a she, thicker. She, she, she has, a, she has a, and I'm, I'm not being perverted, she has a little girth, though, actually. Well, I mean, she has a cute shape, but, you know. There are black women who are a little more sh who shapely. Way more shapely. Way more shapely. You know, they had the dimples in the cottage cheese, and I'm all for that. <laughs> I'm all for that. You can play I Like It Now. I like it. 
<laughs> Let us move on. <laughs> Let's go to some praiseworthy news. Um, we're happy for this young man. Indeed. He, uh, last week, uh, had cardiac arrest, was rushed to the hospital. He is the son of Savannah and LeBron James. He is LeBron James Jr., but everybody knows him as Bronny, Bronny. James. But he's out of the hospital as we speak. He's been playing the piano and he's under watch. So they're just doing more tests to see if he can play this year at the University of Southern California. What were you thinking when you first heard this news? When I first heard this, I was shocked. I was shocked that a college freshman athlete as fit as Bronny James appears to be could po- how they could possibly have a heart attack. And of course, the speculation started with, oh, it's because he took the vaccine. Oh, it's because he's been on social media smoking weed and all of that stuff. So I, I, I was initially just flat out shocked. How could this happen? I mean, was there any sign that he had a heart condition or, you know what I mean? Because previously all the other videos that we've seen on social media show his athletic prowess, show him dunking all of his handles, you know, his amazing basketball skills. And of course his just physical fitness, it just seemed like he was, um, you know, strong and just, a well-conditioned athlete. And so for this to happen, I was just shocked. But then I was very happy to see that he pulled through. Yes, I'm happy he pulled through too. At the same time, the durability of folks, it's not just the physical shape that somebody's in a condition. We don't know what folks are putting into their bodies. And I'm not talking negative things. It could just be an energy drink or something like that. But thank God he is all right. Um, Did you believe any of the the conspiracy theories? For Ronnie James? No. Yeah. No. I, I mean, did. this was... I. I this I, is the I, second no. USC player that suffered a cardiac arrest in the last two years. So that sort of, you know, raises an eyebrow and makes you think, like, what is going on? But, you know, I, I can kind of empathize with the family it's pro- probably one of my favorite famous families. I love, you know, Savannah, and I just love, you know, their, I just love the family. I mean, we have an outside picture of them, so we don't really know what's going on. You're That's happy true. when somebody stays out of the limelight for anything negative. Uh, anybody that is uh, in national media um, and you know them because of a particular sports they play or their entertainers you kind of have some sort of connection with them because you see them every day and as human beings i think most of us who are good nature you want the best for folks and so that's where my prayers will go out if it was a friend back in the neighborhood and his son or daughter had was suffering from cardiac arrest, I would have the same emotion. So I don't know 
LeBron James personally. I definitely has wa- I definitely have watched his career from high school to this point. And you know, I you want to see them continue to pray do well and be, the Lord, be in good health, said. right? Exactly. That's I all. mean, I but I just feel like as a as a parent who's about to send a child to college, I empathize with you know them having to uh, let your child go and live on a campus out, outside of your home, outside of your care and your watchful eye, and it causes a little bit of anxiety. And I'm and I know that they were probably comforted that Bronnie decided to go to a college close to home, you know, but then, you know, they send them there and then this happens. It's like your worst nightmare. You know what I mean? So I, yeah. I just send, you know, love and good vibes to their family. And I hope they hang in there and push. Yeah, I hope he gets to still play basketball, which is his passion and love. Um, Cause when your passion and love is taken away from you, you know, a part of, you something inside of you kind of I can't find a better like subsides. Yeah. But you know, they you I I would imagine that LeBron sat his son down and said, listen, you don't have to do we all know they don't he doesn't have to do that because he has generational wealth for yeah, all but of our that's families. just <laughs> that's just money, but that goes to show. Right. Like life is more than that. Like you want to play. That's like if you are a great singer and all of a sudden something happens to your throat, your voice, like the DOC, the rapper, you know? um, Yeah. You still going to make money because you can write rhymes for other people. But that joy that you were searching for um, just that competition, that mano a mano on the basketball court, when that's taken away, there's no amount of money that can replace that. That's true. And you mentioned um, he was playing the piano. We saw the video of him playing the piano. I know because I follow them on Instagram, but I noticed, did you notice in the video, you could hear LeBron in the background go, he's multi-talented. He has many talents. And what I took from that is it does not have to be basketball. We got other stuff you can do. So that's what I took from it. But again. Just like you, I hope he's able to live out his passion and live out his dream if it's basketball. Amen. And let us move on. Don't stop now. Okay, Toyota <laughs> is so today, the brand. Yes, I want to talk about something that I like and Amen. I can attest to as a reliable brand of car, Toyota. So, so yeah, this right here, this picture that you're looking at is the more recent model. I have a 2017 so mine, this is the, the newfangled fancy sport package model. I have, like I said, the 2017 model, which is still attractive. Um, and I love it. Um, I loved it so much. I, at first I had the 2014, but I wrecked that. And I love this car so much. I got the exact same car in the exact same color, gray. 
and I love it. I mean, I, I'm not a soccer mom. It's the minivan. I'm not a soccer mom, but I'm a baseball mom. So, so and football and basketball, mom. Right. All of the above, you know, the, I'm, you know, 50 some odd years old and I've only had four cars in my life. My first car was a Nissan Pulsar. Second car was a Mercedes, but my third and fourth cars were Toyota Sienna's. I love this car. It's roomy. It's, uh, it's good on gas. Even as a minivan, I can put regular gas in there. Um, I can sit up high. I like sitting up high in a minivan. I'm used to being up high now. Um, I've taken it on family vacations. You can fit lots of luggage in there. Um, I think I have seven seats. And I I have the run flat tires, which is perfect for me. Because if you get a nail in your tire or you, you know, it's never really flat. You can actually drive the tire with a nail in it or with a leak in it. For about 50 miles. For about 50 miles. That's true. Um, and this just happened to me recently. I had to replace a couple of tires because of nails. So, yeah, I love well, run this flats, tell, tell the audience, run, run flats ain't cheap. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no, they're not. Uh, on this car, they cost about $300 a piece. And then you got to pay for the installation. You can get a better deal if you get four at a time. But, and throw away. Yeah, they get you. But I, I like not having to. I, I'm never going to change a tire, like I said. So I like never having to carry a spare. I can get through it, get to the, you know, get to the shop on my uh, quote unquote flat tire and get it changed. All right. So there Toyota you have- Sienna. Listen, what's the what's the uh, the tagline? Let's go places. <laughs> I've been lots of places in my Toyota Sienna. Thank you very much. And let us move on. But I heard that. Okay, we have an extraordinary person coming on right now. And we are going to interview her. She is somewhat of a mentor to me. Um, I was... I, I am still proud of what she has done at the institution that I am employed by. She's an African-American woman. Her name is Dr. Karen Butler-Purry. And so we welcome her aboard. Okay. Good afternoon, Dr. Butler Perry. How are you doing this wonderful day? Good afternoon. I'm doing well. Thank you. Okay. Now, I wanted to tell you before we started, uh, my partner, Kim Parker Jackson, is an alum of Howard University. She attended Howard uh, University School of Law. All right. All right. So uh, that's yeah. the commonality. Well, I think I heard earlier she's also a Delta. Oh, she's a Delta too. So That's I'm right. a Delta. I'm celebrating. This is my 40th year. Oh, okay. So what, what, what year? This is a long time for you too, Kim. Where are you? Like 30-something? You're on mute, Kim. 86. 86. Okay. So okay, let me, okay, let me go back and say what I said. Uh, welcome 37. to Pollocker 
podcast, Dr. Butler Perry. Nice to meet you. Uh, hello, Soror. Uh, H-U. Uh-huh. <laughs> Good to meet you. Yes. So, yeah, all of the above. Yes. yes. So before we get into it, let, just tell us a little bit about your background so you can, uh, the audience can come familiar with who you are, like your academic credentials. I know folks don't like to to brag and talk about it, but we just try to give, you know, our audience context, like who we are actually talking to. Okay, so uh, I'm actually a native of Louisiana, so I was born in a small town outside of Baton Rouge. So I did my undergrad at Southern University in Baton Rouge, and I'm um, actually master's at UT Austin and then my PhD at Howard. Uh, okay. My degrees are in electrical engineering. Wow. And uh, after I finished my PhD, uh, I actually moved to College Station and began working at Texas A&M. And so I've been at Texas A&M now uh, 28 years, I guess. Mm-hmm. And um, I've gone through the ranks. I'm a full professor. I've held some administrative positions. Um, I guess recently I just finished leading the grad school for the past 12 years. And so I'm back to the faculty full time. Okay. So my connection with Dr. Butler Perry is when I'm on a campus like Texas A&M, and I I don't want to harp on this, but, you know, uh, you, you don't see a lot of black faces and when she asked me to be on a couple of committees that she was in charge of i was very very proud to be in the room with her being the leader i just looked at that as phenomenal and i thought it was a great achievement not that we can't achieve these things but i don't know i guess i would have to tell you a little bit more about texas a&m university for you to give a better understanding of what I mean. But lately, there's been some things going on uh, at the collegiate level. Um, one of them, the Supreme Court uh, ruled against, uh, voted against affirmative action. And that really is going to impact the lives of um people of color attending uh, predominantly white institutions, particularly uh, Latinx people and African-Americans. And we wanted to just put it out there to like, what are your thoughts or what are the impacts that you see with this decision that was recently made? Well, I think probably as you know, we, at Texas A&M wasn't directly impacted by this because we actually were not using race in admissions. Um, so, you know, we had, I guess, maybe in the early 2000s, the Hotwood decision, um, and then later the Fisher case. And so in the Fisher case, it said you had the option, but Texas A&M chose not to use race in admissions. So we actually weren't using it. So in terms of the institution being directly impacted from that, um, I don't I don't think that's the case. Um, but I, you know, I think um, what one would expect is that, you know, the selective institutions that were using it, right, they will be looking for other ways to diversify, you know, their student body, because I think they recognize the value of having a diverse student body. Um, I imagine then some of the individuals who will not 
be selected to go to those institutions because, you know, I think it's hard maybe to have the same impact with the things that they're probably going to use. And so likely then we will have then fewer, you know, African-Americans attending those selective institutions and then those students will, you know, go to other institutions. Um, maybe, you know, we might see an increase uh, at HBCUs, you know, as a result of that. Um, I mean, we had an increase at HBCUs after the Floyd, you know, incident. Uh, and so things are kind of like at an all-time high at HBCUs. Uh, but yeah, I I think it's just sort of a hmm, maybe it's a symbolic, you know, you know, blow first and foremost, right? Because I think it gives cover for then the places that don't want to do this, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so I was on the committee to help recruit minority graduate students uh, to Texas A&M. Um, and that was difficult, I guess, in itself. Uh, it was hard to carry out. What do you think the issues are with minority recruitments at PWIs? Hmm. Uh, I think it's, you know, pretty complex. You know, I, I, I don't know. I always think about kind of my story. So, you know, I went to Southern. I grew up understanding some of the politics of Southern and LSU. And so when I graduated from Southern, I had a full ride to go to grad school at LSU. And I wouldn't go because of what you know, I knew, but then I went to UT Austin. And so the reality is it has also a similar history to the history, you know, of LSU. And so um, I think that, you know, one of the challenges, uh, for example, at, you know, Texas A&M and recruiting students from Prairie View is the history, right, of those two institutions. Um, so I think one of the challenges is, you know, there is a history and therefore, you know, um, ancestors of those students sometimes are like, well, why do you want to go to that place? Mm -hmm. You know, that years ago would not allow us. Right. And so I think that's first, you know, well, not the only, but that's one big challenge. And so if the institution is not presenting, you know, this picture that they are welcoming and inclusive, then it's easy, you know, to have others tell you that that's not a place, you know, that wants you, you know, to be there. So I think that's one of the challenges. Um, I, I think another challenge is, you know, uh, when you are likely to experience, you know, isolation because there is so few during the time that you matriculate, you know, for, for some students, that's going to be really a, a serious barrier, right, um, to overcome. And so I think the small numbers makes it hard also, right, to recruit students because you have to then you know, perhaps know that you can go and you can, you know, survive, thrive or thrive, you know, through an experience where you may be the only student who looks like you, you know, in your classes and other kinds of things like that. So that's another, you know, challenge and really, you know, trying to increase the numbers. And then I think that, you know, there is a lot of unconscious bias, right? Um, for, in, for faculty who have not, or staff who have not actually, uh, engaged with, you know, African-American students in particular, um, 
they have sometimes, you know, unconscious bias and sometimes, you know, perhaps a student maybe, you know, not performing well on something to them means something greater than the fact that just perhaps they didn't know that thing. They may see that as really representing the fact that they probably, you know, that they don't belong there. So I think that's another, you know, big challenge is because, you know, some maybe faculty and staff haven't had a multitude of experience in engaging with us, they may not believe that we, you know, have the capability to be there to succeed and stuff like that. And it's really difficult sometimes uh, to succeed in a place where somebody really doesn't believe that you can succeed, right? So, so I don't know, there's, it's a lot of different reasons, I think. Um, and that's, I guess, you know, why, I don't know. I think the, the changes have been incremental, you know, in, in terms of overcoming that is because it's pretty complex and it takes a systematic approach to deal with it. And a lot of times that's not the approach that's being done. It's usually some one-off things that happen. And even if you believe that training could help turn that around, that unconscious bias around, you can't even engage in that type of training anymore because of, you know, the recent legislation that right. has done away with those types of programs, the right. DEI programs, diversity, equity, and inclusion, especially in states like Texas and Florida. Right. Right. Um, so it just shows that those schools aren't even making a good faith effort to change those those things that may um, that may you know keep minority students from wanting from feeling welcomed at at uh, those types of uh, predominantly white institutions. Unfortunately, yeah. Yeah. I definitely think this is you know that particular the state laws are a serious blow because I I think that universities. Um, had really started to invest in understanding, you know, that you needed a systematic approach and recognizing, for example, that offices of diversity were important, you know, to take the lead and then to try to coordinate the things that might be happening in departments and colleges and stuff like that to have greater impact and to do away, you know, with these uh, types of offices um, and, uh, also, you know, the resources, you know, to do some of the work and stuff like that. I think it's definitely going, it's a setback. And I, I really don't know yet, <laughs> you know, what, what's, you know, how we're going to counter, uh, counter that. I, I definitely know that, you know, there's a lot of conversations going on all across the country and how do we now continue to move forward, you know, given these big blows in the, in the various states and stuff like that. But yes, I, I don't know, for many, you know, maybe universities, at least in the states that have passed these, um, this is, you know, maybe even some, a bigger blow than the Supreme Court decision. That's a good point. That's a great point. And you also mentioned the history of some of these universities that can sort of discourage um, minority students from wanting to attend. Um, I think schools like Georgetown have taken the lead with sort of um, acknowledging that history and trying to make amends for it and where Georgetown admitted that they had sold right. 272 mm -hmm. slaves, right. enslaved people to keep the university afloat. Mm -hmm. And now they're trying to make amends for that. And I think when you see that happening, 
I think that gives some reassurance to, uh, you know, black and other um, yes. students of color that they could be welcome there. When you see that the, stu the school is making a good faith effort to turn things around. Right, right. And I do think that, you know, admitting to the truth is extremely important, right? And then, of course, accepting responsibility for it by then deciding, you know, to put some of your resources to, you know, try to make some amends for it, you know, is really good. And there are, yeah, a few universities that are doing that, yeah. But I don't see that happening in Texas or Florida, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, it's, it's so complicated. I I don't know. I don't know how the yeah the truth is important, <laughs> right? We can't yeah. we can't, and that's what the history is really really important for us to continue to perpetuate, right? Indeed. So uh, hold on one second. So another decision was the diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, at Texas A&M University, just two years ago, I was on this diversity. It was a campus-wide uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion committee. There were a lot of black folks that were skeptical about the committee, saying, like, we've done this before. The university is not going to do anything with it. Wow. And, you know, I was pepped up in gung-ho, but surely enough, when the decisions were written up and forwarded, nothing really was put into place from that committee. And then now, DEI is no longer needed. Uh, there's a lot going on at, in the state of Texas. Uh, what say you about the DEI approach and how that is now removed? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, as we were, you know, kind of discussing, I, I do think this is a big deal. Um, I, I think one, probably partnerships are going to be the way, you know, at least one way um, that, universities that are going to try to um, continue to, you know, to have the progress that they had, you know, I mean, I think if you go back to, so after, you know, the decision that said we couldn't use race uh, in admissions and in scholarships, you know, sort of in, in Texas, then they went to, you know, this, you know, the top 10%, right, which was sort of an attempt to get diverse, to have diversity you know, in, you know, certain institutions in Texas, the thought was, you know, that there are, you know, quite a few schools in the, in the state of Texas that are predominantly minority. And, you know, if you, you know, got the top 10% from those, you know, those schools, then you would, you know, sort of um, somehow be able to achieve some of the diversity that you want. But, you know, we are many years later and we know the numbers are still not there, right? And so it's very hard to, probably counter something, you know, like systematic racism to counter with something very mm, subtle, right? You know, if you don't do something blatant, right, to counter something, a lot of times you can't be successful. So it's like, if you can't decide that you're going to focus on, 
the element that was the reason for the exclusion, how can you really, really, really counter it in some substantial way? So I do think it's going to be very hard. So I, I do have a question, and I can um, ask both of you this. As um, Black people that work at a predominantly white institution, for Dr. Butler Perry, you have been an educational administrator as well as a professor in the classroom, correct? Yes. I'm curious as to, first of all, which one do you enjoy the most? And then secondly, where do you think you could have the um, the most, if the most impact, if you will, mm-hmm. as far as being diverse, you know, diverse employees at a predominantly white right. institution, where can you have the greatest impact? Right, right, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I think, um, hmm, I, I think that you definitely, you know, so one of the things I enjoyed when I was leading the graduate school is that I, you know, had the opportunity then to make decisions. I control resources so I could direct resources toward, you know, initiatives that I would wanted to, you know, try to implement. Mm-hmm. And so certainly, uh, I think an administrative role provides you the opportunity to have, you know, broader impact than the one-on-one type of thing. Um, but I, I will tell you, so when I came to Texas A&M, I wasn't sure I wanted to work at a PWI. But when I got there, you know, I realized that there were students who looked like me and somebody had to be there for those students who look like me. And then also, if we wanted to change the vision that people had for people who look like me, then I needed to be somebody who looked like me there. And so, you know, and so I, I, I stayed there. I, I decided to stay there and work. And, um, you know, I feel like Texas A&M takes money from people all over the state and African-Americans deserve to be there. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to be, you know, someone there to help, you know, be a part of that success. And so there is sort of, you know, personally, you know, the impact of one-on-one helping to be that person, you know, for the student who maybe they just need to come into your office, close the door and tell you what's going on. They don't need you to fix it for them, but they just need somebody to then say, yes, I understand what you're saying, what you're seeing and feeling is real. Right. And then they walk out the door and then they go on. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, as a faculty member, I don't know, I have the ability to kind of be the person who can sort of help the individuals. But yes, I think in an administrative role, you have the opportunity to impact policies, the impact, you know, at much greater, you know, in terms of initiatives and things like that. So it's hard to decide, you know, which, you know, which is, is more important, right? You know, or has the greatest individuals impact. Or saving, right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So. Because it's important for you to be seen by those students. Right. And it's more hands-on as I, I would imagine as a professor versus an administrator, which many people a lot of times don't even see that much on a college campus because they're in the office, they're making, you know, making policy right, decisions right. from up on high, if you will. <laughs> right, right. Well, the and thing th- is that we have to have the individuals be successful until we end up having greater numbers. So there needs to be the Shante Anderson graduating with a PhD before eventually we might have more Sante, you know, Andersons at Texas A&M, right? So somebody has to help those who chose to come and persevere through, right? The climate right. and the environment and stuff like that, so. And which one did you enjoy the most, can you say? Can, can <laughs> I you enjoy one? both of them. I mean, I'm still there <laughs> because I really feel like 
you know, I've been able to do some good things. So I, yeah. I have to say both have been both. equally enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. If you're asking me, I haven't been in administration. So it's it's definitely the classroom. But, you know, I teach at an HBCU, too. Um, one is more rewarding than the other. And I don't mean that as a slight at Texas A&M. I just think the students at Texas A&M, no, regardless of their race and their ethnicity, are a little ahead of majority of the students at Texas Southern University. But mm. when I say it's more rewarding, you know, to go in to any institution, whether it be a junior college, and really help a young man or a young woman or a young non-binary student to change um, their mindset around and make them believe uh, and make them confident in their academic efficacy is just remarkable, remarkable and it's touching. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a reward. It's just like, okay, you see a person going from A to B. Wherein, as Texas A&M, a lot of them might already come in equipped. Now, mind you, I'm talking about like uh, lower classes, like, you know, um, not 400, like 100 courses, like students that are taking freshmen courses. Some students come in and they're prepared. I just need to give them instructions and they're like, boom. But there are other students, you know, that you need to guide them and hold their hands through the process. And I'm okay with that because I'm a product of two HBCUs. Um, but Texas A&M might be hard because sometimes it's just location. I don't want to live in College Station. There are not enough black folks or minorities around. Simple as that. Uh, I remember we were recruiting a student. She got accepted into LSU and she got accepted into Texas A&M. And I remember at lunch, I told her in front of everybody there, I said, Baton Rouge is different than College Station. And my white colleagues looked at me and they knew exactly what I was talking about. It's just that simple. Um, some students, African-American students, that doesn't care. Like, they can ingratiate themselves in any circle. Um, when I was young, I felt the same way. But when you get a little older, like, I'm a little older. I'm like, I need to be around folk. Simple as that. Yeah. And people who don't understand when I say folk, <laughs> I mean black people. That's what I mean. No, we know what you mean. Right. Yeah. So, I, I, like I said, I enjoy teaching anybody, you know, any, all those that are willing to learn. Um, I'm a willing participant and I will meet you where you want to be met. Uh, but uh, administration, I wouldn't mind taking on. And also administration pays more. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I will say that I think that Black people need to be everywhere. We need to be at PWIs. We need to be at HBCUs. And so I would like to thank both of you for just being there. Yeah. I'm, 
I'm going to give a shout out to Dr. Karen Butler Perry. I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your knowledge. And um, like I said, you do great things at Texas A&M. You're definitely uplifting to me. Um, and, you know, I'm just trying to follow in your footsteps. Like, you know, you, Dr. Means Coleman, who's at Northwestern actually now, and she's dealing with that whole hazing thing over there. Um, but it's good to see folks that look like you in positions, uh, leadership positions, because it does give you that, you know, that impetus or that charge or that, hey, she's doing it. There's a possibility I can do it too. So thanks for coming on and sharing your point of views. And we hope to have you on in the near future. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate it. And great to meet you, Kim. And you as well. Yeah. Take care. See you next time. Bye -bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. So that's Butler Perry. She's had an amazing career. Yes, she has. And she is. That's how we do. Let us move on. And let us move on. We have a question. It's a question. Address the question. This is a question. So what's the question? Answer the question. Yes, so this is question 27. Uh, we might <laughs> do away with this after question 30. We're not getting a lot of responses. I don't know if I should have put that out there that way. <laughs> hey, we just real. We just real with it. It is what it is. Okay. Maybe we'll ask like a different type of question that you and I can talk about as opposed to. The question of the week is, if you have a bowl with six apples and you take four how many do you have? If you have a bowl with six apples and you take four, how many do you have? Last week, the question was, if a plane crashed between the United States and Canada, where do they bury the survivors? And you say, Ken, where did they bury the survivors? Nowhere, because you can't bury survivors. They're still living. Amen. Okay. <laughs> So, like I said again, if you have a bowl with six apples and you take four, how many do you have? And you can respond to potlickershow at gmail.com. Provide us with the answers and uh, we'll take it from there. All right. And let us move on. All right. We got a little self therapy playing in the background. But we're going to go into our topic talk. Kim is going to start us off, and she is going to tell us everything 
that happens, and I'm going to come back and jump in. So this is Topic Talk, and this week, uh, Cam Newton's situation with his ex-girlfriend. Right, so this was um, Cam Newton, who is is a quarterback for the Carolina Panthers, and he is now suing his four children's mom. He had four children with this woman. Um, her name is Kia, I believe. And he's suing her to get back the 2017 Bentley Bentega that she was driving when she was living with him. And, you know, they were living together for several years. They never got married, but the relationship basically went sour when Cam Newton apparently had a baby with an Instagram model. And, you know, we can all understand, you know, you step out, you have an affair you know, we can get over that. Nobody's yeah, going to know. We can for, we can forgive. Some of us can. Yeah. Some people can forgive an affair. But when you actually have a baby on somebody, that's just, that's not going to go well. So they end up with me, be a millionaire. <laughs> I know. Okay. Uh, 50 cents. Um, but So they broke up and she moved out, but she took the Bentley Bentega, which is that, the, you know, the SUV crossover Bentley vehicle, um, took it with her and she won't give it back. So he's now has to sue to get it back. And the car is in his name. And he's claiming that he just, let her drive it, let her take the kids back and forth. And they have four children. Let, the, let her take the kids back and forth to school or go get groceries or what have you. And so when she left, she said, this is my car. I earned this car. I'm keeping it. And yeah, not cool. I, I think she, yeah. Well, I, I, I don't know. It's not cool what she did or what he's asking for? <sighs> Well, I, I, I just think I would handle this differently. And first of all, let me state another fact, which is he's paying child support to the tune of approximately $15,000 a month. 50 or so 15? 15, dollars $15,000 a month, which is nothing to sneeze at. Um, technically, if she wanted to get, a, a not get her own, she'd give him the old one, she'd get a newer one. You know, it's a 2017. She could get like a 2020 or a 2020, you know, 2023 if she wanted to. I think that's $180,000 a year. Non tax. Right. I, I, it's just, I, I'm, totally, tax, I'm right? totally against Cam on this one. And just for the reason, I can see if I can't, but I can see if she didn't have any kids by you when she got four kids. <laughs> What are they going to ride? So in? He's, <laughs> he's trying to say, well, you can get another car. Like, 
a Toyota Sienna. No, <laughs> no, <laughs> no this, no this. Right. Listen. You can get a Toyota Sienna to get around because as my partner says, it works well. It's very reliable. Right. So, <laughs> but I don't see, I don't know his his financial situation. He's no longer playing football right now. I don't know if he's still owed money by some football teams. He does have a podcast, and I'm sure that's doing pretty well. Uh, His last team was Carolina Panthers. He was a quarterback for the Carolina Panthers. Yeah, he was with the Patriots, and he just went back to Carolina. Okay, okay. So he's a former MVP. Um, He went to the Super Bowl and lost. But he was a good quarterback in the NFL. He had a nice little run. He took a lot of it has nothing to do with his his football talents. It's just this is all relation relational. Um, I think Cam just let her have the um SUV. Okay, it's a Bentley. Um, but you would have to look at it to tell like it's a Bentley because it looks like other it looks like the X five or the Audi. It looks similar to those. Mm-hmm. on the outside looking in, but then you pull up, you're like, oh, wow, that's a Bentley. Um, but... The car is worth like probably $100,000 now. Poor kid. I think brand new is like 200 and something. I think. Yeah, I can't say I was checking out that whip. But how would you feel if, if your Cam and your children's mother kept the car and she has a new boyfriend and the new boyfriend is driving the car. You're okay with that? Yes, because you asking the wrong person. Like, I'm not getting upset if my girlfriend or ex-wife or ex-girlfriend chooses a new guy. That is life. It's going to happen. But you know, riding in your car? I don't care about that long as he's a responsible driver and if he's responsible with picking up my kids and bringing them home, if he does his job, then salute, brother, fine. Okay, but can you understand why Cam Newton wouldn't like that? I understand why jealous people are like that, yeah. Like people who so are you're saying Cam company. Newton is jealous? I'm not, I don't know why you would get upset with that situation. She's moved on. I would look at the truck as her possession and she can do whatever she wants with it. When you were with her, you gave her it. So now is it like, I don't know if this is racial, so forgive me to all my natives, like you being an Indian giver. Oh, no, you didn't. That's racist. Is it? Take take it back. Okay. (laughs) I take that back. My apologies (laughs) for that. I don't really grasp the concept. I thought that. The concept of what? Like the Indian giver, like they give it. And they, and they take it back. Is Are they taking it back because it's properly theirs? I don't know. So I but do the point is, is that the, the term has a negative connotation to it. So you don't want to attribute that. To I know, but what is the negative connotation? I never, you know, school me on that. Any of my fellow so natives. It, so Native Americans are the only people that would take something and give give something and take it back. But I thought they were taking it back for reasons. Well, the implication on the term is that you properly gave someone something. And then because you, as a gift, because you wanted to, them to have it. If you give someone as a gift, 
give if you give someone something as a gift, it's kind of it's it's wrong to take it back. It was a gift. I think it's illegal. So a person that would do that is not a good person. So it's a negative connotation, well, and to attribute it to that's a not a good people, thing. We can't say we can't say they're not a good person. We can say what they're doing is not a good thing. Because um, this so anger is this, no, it isn't. Because I said just like no, you saying that said, racist people. That if you make a racist statement, you don't necessarily that have don't mean racist. racist, right? Because you labeling something that something that you don't do is habitual. <sighs> we all we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all do that. And so, so you think there's a situation where if you've given someone something as a gift, it's okay to take it back? I think so. I think if you give somebody an engagement ring and they go out and they cheat on you and they mess around on you, they don't deserve that ring. Now, if, well, you, go, I mean, that's if you go because... cheat on them, if you go cheat on them, the giver of the ring cheats, then yeah, you know, then the other person should get it. But I, I think the culprit is responsible of returning the gift. But can I just... Who received the gift. Okay, that makes sense. What you're saying, that makes sense. But the the engagement ring is a different issue because it's a conditional gift. So I'm giving you this ring conditioned upon us getting married. It's the same thing with the car. I'm giving you the car. So with the, if you don't get married, you don't get to keep the ring. Is the it's, the same, it's the same thing with the car. But what I'm saying, Cam, if you want to keep your kids, take the car back. If you're not, Give her Wait the a car. Minute. How is it the same thing with the car? So he said, I'm giving you this car to drive as long as we're in a relationship. Who who does that? Saying if she leaves you, Cam, nine times out of ten, she's going to get the offspring. Your car, your kids need to be um chauffeured around. So yeah, the mother should get something. You should make sure the mother is comfortable. Like, this is what I'm saying, weak men, like, to me. I don't care what they've done to you. They're still responsible for your kids. Right. And they need, your children need somewhere to live. So right. it makes and sense that she would take that picture. Exactly. Right. And pay for her mortgage or rent. And then you need, the kids need something to ride around in. So, yeah, that makes sense. That's in the Cam Newton situation because we think he has the income or the amount of money. But if we're talking about me, it's a the average Joe. The average Joe. Yeah, it's a little, uh-uh, homie. Run that Bentley back, I'll sell it, and you go out and get you a Sienna plantation, a uh, Sienna uh, Toyota for about $27,000 or $33,000. You didn't say run me my Bentley back, did you? Yeah, yeah, run it back. <laughs> but, but see, the thing that I think hurts, um, hurts her here is that the car is in his name. If someone is giving me a car, then I think I'm going to, you know, require that the title be in my name. Now, you can make the payments, but if you're giving me something, I'm going to be like, um, excuse me, can you put that in my name? Like, I <laughs> get that, but she, I don't think at the time she got the car, she was thinking about that because she had kids and they were in love. But don't you think that's evidence that he wasn't really giving her the car? If it's in his name? No. He was letting her use it? I, if it's a surprise, 
if it's a surprise, how she going how you gonna put it in her name? Okay. She so, doesn't yeah. have to be there to for him to put it in her name, though. You can no. put it in someone else's name. I get what you're saying, yeah. um, but what I'm just saying is like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not cool. I hope they resolve this fighting over a car. And I mean, what are, what are they going to do with like all the designer bags he probably bought for her, all the Rolex watches he probably bought for her, the diamond earrings, the diamond necklace, the diamond hey, bracelet? Yeah. You know what? all that happened. What? Well, she brought it and gave it to her. Just give it to her. I know. Yeah. With move that on. being said. And let us move on. Blackness. Keep it, keep on. So today we want to highlight as our little known black history fact, James Horton was born on September 2nd, 1766 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He was a successful businessman with a bustling business that employed both black and white workers. And he was one of the healthiest, I mean, one of the wealthiest Philadelphians of his time of any race. He used his position and half of his considerable fortune to fight slavery and to demand civil rights for African-Americans, including purchasing the freedom of others, supporting anti-slavery journalism, and founding a school. He was a tireless activist who helped to organize the American Anti-Slavery Society. James Fortin, our little known Black history fact. Let us move on. All right, our last plug of the day is always our podcast plug. Black Men Can't Jump is the podcast. And uh, Black Men Can't Jump is a comedic podcast that reviews films with leading actors of color and analyzes them in the context and race of Hollywood's diversity issue hosted by Jonathan Braylock, uh, Jera Milligan, and James III. Uh, Black Man Can't Jump is an iTunes editor's choice podcast and has reached uh, number two on the iTunes film TV charts. Black Man Can't Jump has also been covered by multiple websites, including the Huffington Post, Split Cider, Salon, The Daily Dot, and more. So we're going to give it up to uh, 
black men can't jump. Move on. Oh, hell no. We always do this two times. Oh, <laughs> hell no. Okay, here we have, we're in New Bern, Alabama, where white folks just don't want the new mayor, Patrick Braxton, to take office. What the hell is going on? <laughs> Tell me about it. This is just flat out crazy. What is happening? This man, he became the first black mayor of New Bern, Alabama, when he was elected in 2020. Um, but since the, and, and this is a in a town that's 85% black. This man has spent his money campaigning. He did everything he was supposed to do. He registered, did everything right, and became the mayor, and the people won't let him mayor. They just won't let, won't let him be the mayor. They literally locked him out of town hall. This is this is just crazy. And 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 it just reminds me of doesn't this sound like something that Donald Trump would do? This is the this is the influence of Donald Trump to think that you can just subvert the will of the people. The people have voted this man into office in this 85% black town. And then you're like, I don't care what the people said. You are not going to be the mayor. They, we don't want no black mayor in this town. Like, are I, you serious? I call, li- I call this reniggerless. <laughs> oh. That was it, good. <laughs> it, makes, was good. it makes no sense what these folks are doing. Um, this man won fair and square. And they keeping them out. And the thing about it, it's 85%. Of, come on, black folks now. Come on, man. 85 to 15. Now, all of y'all ain't got cardiac arrest down there. All of y'all ain't eating chitlins. Y'all need to stand up and fight for uh, Mayor Patrick Braxton. You know? Yeah. It sounds like apartheid South Africa, where you have a few white people controlling everything. Like, seriously. So after years of racist harassment and intimidation, he decided he got fed up. He filed a federal civil rights lawsuit and he's accusing town officials of conspiring to Mm. deny his civil rights and his position because of his race. And I hope he wins because y'all crazy. That is well said. And let us move on. Give it up, give it up, give it up, yo. All right, we got a lot of people to give it up to this week. First, we're going to start off with, let's give it up to Jalen Brown's new contract. Make it him the richest uh, player in NBA history. He signed a $304 million contract, which will be paid over five years. He'll get $31 million this year coming up, 31.5, I should say. I don't want to leave out that 0.5 because that 0.5 is $500,000, which I don't make a year. All right. Then he's the following year, he'll make $52 million. Mm-hmm. And in his third year, he'll be making 69 point something million dollars. Wow. So, you know, that deserves. And you know what? He's wearing lucky number seven. He's in. <laughs> 
Lucky number seven. Yes. That is um, good for him. That is what he is getting. So big up to Jalen Brown. We just gonna let this ride for a little bit. Next up is Olivia Pichardo. Olivia Pichardo is a young lady who plays baseball at Brown University Division I with the men, not the women. And I'm not saying the women are inferior, but she plays baseball with the men. She hit a home run over the last weekend. So we're going to give it up to Olivia Pichardo. Amen. Pichardo. You know, hopefully one day we can see women playing in the major leagues. And lastly, we're giving it up to President Biden for signing an act that will put an Emmett Till monument. Uh, I don't know where they're placing this, actually. Where are they placing it? So the monument, which is the fourth national monument designated by the Biden administration, will span three sites in Illinois and Mississippi that hold historical importance to the story of Emmett Till's life and the events surrounding his racially motivated murder in 1955. Yes. Um, so the monument sites encompass the Roberts Temple Church of God in Christ in Bronzeville, a historically black neighborhood in Chicago where Till's funeral service took place. And they also include the Grayball Landing Site, G-R-A-B-A-L-L, Grayball Landing Site, where his body was believed to be discovered, um, and the courthouse in um, Tallah Tallahatchie, Mississippi, where his killers were acquitted of murder. Mm-hmm. And then they later, uh, you know, confessed to it in a paid uh, interview in Look Magazine. They got $4,000 for that. Mm-hmm. And they knew they couldn't be tried again because of double jeopardy. Isn't that just terrible? And so he would have been 82 this year on the day that um, Biden signed the proclamation. So, yeah, this is great. I think it's great. He was a year older than my dad. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I like what President Vice President Kamala Harris said at the uh, Delta Convention in Indianapolis. She said, let us not be seduced into believing that somehow we will be better if we forget. So mm-hmm. I'm happy to see. I think it's good that we'll have a monument now to keep us in remembrance of what happened during this seminal moment we in our history. This. Seeing it. In remembrance. You don't know that song? No. Sing some more. It's, that's that's all the choir sings. You know what? I think you should play uh, Dr. York's, uh, her, her song. Oh, yeah. We'll play a little bit of that. I no, play, but I think you should play it when you can put it up on the screen so we can see it and hear it. Uh, can you do that? You can't do that right now, can you? But we can hear a little bit of it. Okay. Put it directly into the mic, please, so I can hear. And we can praise him on this beautiful Sunday. 
What's the name of your church? It's the Church Without Walls. Church Without I, Walls. Without Walls. Yeah, yeah, she did her thing today. I, I stayed for both services, actually. And she uh, at ten o'clock. She let me let me find out. She hit us with the James Brown though. She left and came back. She yeah, hit us yeah. with the drop the mic and then came back. The second time they sang it. They kind of cut it at the end because I thought they thought they were short on time, but the band kept playing, so she came on back. <laughs> she hit her with the James Bond yeah. with the cape. And in the audience, they, they really enjoyed her, and it, it, it was good to see her like after services, folks coming up to her saying, "You did that thing, girl." Mm-hmm. She so, ministered you know, uh, uh, what she did. You know, I'm always supportive. Um, and let me find out, Dr. A, that she was not only singing, she was directing the choir at the same time. I saw the little hand motion like. <laughs> she was just making gestures kind of like to coincide with the lyrics. 
Oh, it looked like she's she was like, fire sings, you know. Like, she's right. Right. Yeah, yeah. She's uh Anna. Like in her background. Oh well, you better go on and let them use you, girl. Let them use you. <laughs> that was amazing. That's that great. was off camera. Hey, let's oh, oh, come back later. We're, we're gonna wrap up the show right now. <laughs> All right. Thanks for hanging in there with us today, folks. As always, I'll go through our plugs first. We did Vaseline Intensive Care Cocoa Butter. We did the Toyota Sienna, which my partner drives and she loves. We did the Black Men Can't Jump podcast. Words of Wisdom was by Stephen D. Cope from South Africa. The oppressor's most potent weapon is the mind of the oppressed. What's going on in our four stories today was how colleges are going to factor race in without asking about race. Northwestern football hazing. LSU Olivia's done needs for security around her on campus. And Bronnie James cardiac arrest. We interviewed Dr. Karen Butler-Purry from Texas A&M University. The question of the week was, if you have a bowl with six apples and you take four, how many do you have? Our topic talk was Cam Newton suing his ex-girlfriend to try to get his Bentley back. And little known Black History Facts was James Fortin. I all hell no went to New Bern, Alabama. New Bern, Alabama. Not Alabama. New Bern, <laughs> Alabama <laughs> against Patrick Braxton, who is the mayor. And we gave it up to Jalen Brown from the Boston Celtics, his new contract. Olivia, Olivia Bichardo, the student from Brown University who plays on a men's baseball team, and President Biden for signing uh, the Emmett Till National Monument. Uh, so that is it for today. Um, and as always, we leave you with. Thank you, everybody, for taking time out of your busy schedules to hang out with us. And as always, in parting, we wish you love, peace, and soul. And so, y'all, we will see y'all next week. Peace.